With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Saturday, February 28th, 2015. I'd like to follow up on something I mentioned in the last recording. <clears throat> when I was talking about the catcalling video. It reminded me of the case of Ray and Janae Rice, which a story, which was a story that broke last year about domestic violence. Ray Rice, a football player, was uh, at the time uh, engaged to Janae Palmer, his fiance, and a video camera caught him coming out of an elevator while his fiance was unconscious, he had to drag her out of it. A little while later, footage came out of what happened inside the elevator before the doors opened. And what it showed is that he had knocked her out. He had gotten angry with her and hit her so hard that she was knocked unconscious. Well, the reaction was, of course, nationwide, and we can all agree that uh, no one should hit a person, certainly not knock her out. And, of course, the story was covered in pretty much everywhere, including on Democracy Now! But there's something that I haven't really heard anyone say, and that may just be because I haven't watched enough of the coverage. I have not heard anyone point out that there was also footage of the couple before they entered the elevator, and that footage showed the beginning of a little spat between them. And now here is the key point. It is Janae who hit him first. No, this doesn't justify any of his hitting. But what's interesting is that no one pointed it out. That she hit first. Or at least that's what the video shows. It's quite possible that he actually hit her first off-camera, and then once that footage started rolling, we see her hit him, and it looks like she hit him first, but it was second. Uh, but either way, we return to the point, which is, it doesn't matter, you should never hit. The point I'm trying to underscore here is that the left, people like Amy Goodman, people with whom I always thought I belonged, failed to criticize her for having hit him, apparently first. And it's time to ask why no one would bother getting bothered about that. Of course, the, the, the direct answer is that when he hit her in the end, it was a massive blow. By the way, she hit him again in the elevator. But I think he approached her. The footage shows that he approached her, and so he must have antagonized her in some way. And, and then she started hitting him lightly. Her hits were light compared to his. But they're still not acceptable, um, and, and there's, they still they may be light relative to his, but they still may be very unpleasant in a, when not compared to his. But still, that doesn't justify his response, his physically violent response in any way. 
what bothers me is that no one, as far as I know, no one has talked about the fact that she is hitting too. And we need to ask why. And one of, one of the reasons, one of the ways in which we can zoom out from this one incident and look at the situation in a cultural way, on a cultural scale, one answer is that actually our culture tells us that we sh not only should women be allowed to hit men, but men should actually enjoy it. I'm thinking of, uh, for example, a recent scene from uh, the, the last Thor movie, which I didn't see, but I saw a clip of it, a, a trailer, a part of a trailer or a part of a clip, in which Natalie Portman hits Chris Hemsworth. First, she hits him because she wants to be sure that he's real, she says. And obviously, that's a totally invalid reason. If you want to be sure someone's real, you can always just poke them on the arm or the shoulder gently with your finger. And then she hits him again to say, where have you been? And his reaction is, of course, very telling. He rolls his eyes in that old-style, old-school, macho way. Uh, rolls his eyes as if to say, yeah, I'm a man, I can take this. And the audience, of course, is supposed to find this funny. Another example that comes to mind, which was not intended to be funny, was in the first Batman movie starring Christian Bale and Katie Holmes. Out of moral indignation, she hits him twice. She slaps him twice very hard on his face. And he, of course, accepts the abuse and becomes ashamed. The character becomes ashamed by it. And that's, again, supposed to impress the audience with a woman's moral authority. No one was bothered by that. No one complained that that's, that's abusive toward a male and that that's unacceptable. And this, I think, goes some ways to explain why women who have hit me, and they didn't slap me on my face, they hit me on uh, either on my torso or my forearms, uh, or in the case of the uh, uh, sports center, a full-on body check. Uh, I think they did this because they think that I will like it. And they think that because many men do like it. And many movies say that men should like it. They should either chuckle over it or roll their eyes. Whatever it is, it becomes a kind of performance of gender. The woman is performing a kind of femininity, and the man, in accepting, in, in putting on a show of invulnerability, is performing a kind of masculinity. And I don't mean to use the word perform in the way Judith Butler uses it in her theoretical work. Frankly, I, I don't know how it's used in that context. I mean perform in the ordinary sense of the word. This, this becomes a kind of hyperbolized gender. It becomes defining. It defines what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a man. And it becomes standardized. It, it becomes normalized. And no one has bothered to point out how misandrist it is. How disgusting it is. And again, uh, the question is, why is the left not worked up about this? Why is Abby Martin not denouncing this kind of behavior, either in real people or, or in fictional characters? Why is Amy Goodman not highlighting it? This whole incident reminds me of an experience I had uh, when I was in the Bible Belt around 2008, perhaps. 
uh, received unwanted communications from my family, and in fact, at my workplace. Uh, it really worried me because they had already uh, contacted my workplace behind my back a few years earlier and uh, badmouthed me to my supervisors. And so I uh, whipped into action this time. I went straight to the police and I said, I, I really want a, a restraining order against these people. I had already tried to get a restraining order against them, I think, the previous year or two and uh, was denied one. And uh, so not surprisingly, they were still allowed to contact me. And so I was sent to the, that police station in that place I was living, in the Bible Belt, and the police laughed me out. They, they I mean, quite almost literally laughed me out of the, the police station. Uh, the idea of someone trying to get a restraining order against uh, mom uh, was a bit too much for them, apparently. But I did somehow or at some point I got advice probably from them to see some kind of domestic violence center in, in that city. That center might be able to help me keep my parents away. Well, I went to that center and uh, the experience was an interesting one because I made an appointment and then sat in the waiting room waiting to see the worker there. And while waiting in that waiting room, which was a very small waiting room, actually, very small. I had to share it with another woman and her friends or family. And they were obviously there because they were victims of domestic violence. And I did my usual thing, which is just to bury my nose in my book and wait for my turn to be called. But these, I think they were all women, maybe a couple of children there, they were very... Uh, they were high energy, loud, and and they didn't they didn't let me have my own space. The woman sitting next to me, there was the the young the young woman who was uh, obviously the wife who had been battered, turned to me and said, "Excuse me, can you tell me what that book is?" And I said something like, "You know, I I really need my I need to be alone. I need to I need sorry, but I I need to be left alone right now." And she didn't like it, even though I was nice about it. I was trying to find a way to say, you know, I, I really need, I'm just here waiting for my turn, and I'm I'm, I'm not going to be a good conversationalist for anyone. And she started provoking me. And and the other women there, there was this, this reaction, this, oh, well, someone's... Someone thinks they're above us. Someone, someone thinks we're below them. He's not going to, you know, deign to speak to us. They didn't say that, but that was well. They actually did say that. There was another woman, part of their party, who came in uh, a few seconds later, and they all instinctively said to her, um, oh, "Don't ask him what he's reading." In that taunting, provocative tone of voice, and that was that was interesting to me. That was interesting to me because I can see how uh, a man who is in a relationship with that kind of woman could be provoked to anger by that kind of uh, taunting, that kind of uh, poking, nagging. And of course, this is not to uh, blame the woman if the man should be provoked to violence. He should not be provoked. He should not let himself be provoked to violence. Uh, I suppose this is the right point at which to say something that I... I never hear anyone else say, which is if a man finds himself 
provoked to violence by a woman, then she's not good for him and he needs to leave and find someone else. If the next person is a woman who does the same thing to him, then he needs to leave her and find someone else. If the pattern keeps repeating, then he should probably find guys to have sex with. I'm not suggesting that he should be exclusively homosexual, but I can't help wondering if many of these problems would be alleviated if, if there weren't so much shaming of homosexuality. I mean, many of these are young guys, and they're really fit, and yeah, some of them are actually getting some action on the down low, as, as people say. Um, but again, the fact that it is on the down low shows that it is, it is shamed in some sense. It needs to be kept secret. So this is just my plug for more homosexuality in the world. In any case, my turn finally came around to see the social worker, and I sat down and I explained the situation to her, what my the falling out that I'd had with my family, the history of their um, stalking or harassing or calling up my employers and uh, bad-mouthing me and my attempts to keep them at bay, uh, f- the failure of those attempts, and what can this office do for me? And, and of course, the office said, we can't do anything for you. So I was out of luck again. But an interesting thing happened during that conversation, which is that at one point I explained to the young woman that I'm homosexual. And as soon as I said that, she literally perked up. It got her back up in a literal way. And she bristled and started smirking and hissed with with an intake of... She, she, she sucked in some air. She was so... Uh, a bit of... Just a little bit of hyperventilation. And she smirked and gave me a flirtatious look and tucked her hair in a spastic gesture with the hand. She tucked her hair behind her ear. Well, I think anyone... Uh, with some experience, knows what that means. That's a that's a formal, well, that's a standard, uh, almost cliched gesture made by a woman to invite a man to flirt with her. And of course, I played dumb and I just pretended not to notice anything. But this this moment needs to be pointed out, and the message behind it needs to be pointed out, which is, no, 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 Mister Tall, athletic. At the time, I was thin and athletic. Mr. Tall, athletic, swarthy, dark, rough and ready looking, hairy man. No, no. This is a place where we women get to tell off men who desire us so much that they're willing to get physically violent to have their way with us. So don't you sit there and tell me you can't get sexually attracted to me when I when I do this. I imagine many men would enjoy that kind of uh, nonverbal overture I I even know gay men who would not mind it or who would even like it. But that's a problem. That's a big problem. It's a problem with gayness, with gay identity as it's constructed. In fact, I'll just take another digression here, which is to, to say that so much of media representation of gay people shows them as having a primary affectional bond, just to talk like a psycho, a primary affectional bond with a woman, not with another man. So that, for example, Will and Grace, think of Will and Grace, 
Will is supposed to be a homosexual, but who is he really in love with? It's Grace. And when he's shown in bed with, uh, what's his name, Jack, um, both of them sort of naked and in bed, they wake up after, I don't know, I don't remember how the episode went, but as soon as that's shown on TV, the entire audience explodes with laughter. That laughter and that whole configuration is all you need to know about homophobia. When, when, when even two gay men in bed provokes that much laughter and where the normal and, and liked thing is for the gay man to be really romantically in love with his, his, his girlfriend, that shows you that, that gayness is, is not about homosexuality. It's about heterosexuality very often. So when a non-gay identified homo like me comes along, or like Gore Vidal, or Stephen Zeeland, or Joseph Massad, or Mark Simpson, uh, of course they may entertain various degrees of uh, affectional intimacy with women, as, as do I, or as did I before this Holocaust. Um, but when, when their ideas, just, just like my ideas, um, are, are viewed as eccentric at best, and, and they actually anger a lot of queer people. I have found myself having to censor myself often around gay people uh, and to suppress my opinions just to get along with them at times. So, if you want to know what's, what's wrong with, uh, with what that woman did with the hair tuck, uh, the woman at the domestic violence center, just uh, just swap in an, another set of genders. Suppose it were uh, a homosexual man behind the desk working in the office, and suppose that the person coming in for the appointment were a heterosexual man. And suppose the homosexual man made that kind of flirtatious overture. Not many heterosexual men, certainly not in the Bible Belt, would have reacted well to that. If they get to frown and withdraw and uh, radiate disapproval, then so do I. But of course, in this case, I didn't dare because I needed her help. That is part of the constant daily stream of little indignities, if that's not too big a word, um, that uh, someone in my position has to go through all the time. And I mean all the time, everywhere, all the time if you're in a public space or a workspace, it is, it is fully relentless. The only way to get away from it is either to go into a men's bathroom or to stay at home. I have every right to want to homosexualize the space around me by, by asserting my, uh, my f homosexual dynamics of relating which is not to say that they're sexual at all, but they're not heterosexual. They don't pander to, uh, to a heterosexual woman's uh, vanity, for example, as happened in, in the case of this, uh, this office worker. Uh, when, when other people, when queers, activist queers, uh, raid, quote-unquote, raid a bar to, to stage a, a queer in in order to homosexualize, to queer that space, the left likes it. But the left likes it because it seems to me the assumption is that it's the homophobia of men that's being confronted and uh, challenged in those queer sit-ins. When it's the homophobia of women that I challenge, then I'm called a misogynist. 
or as as the monster did i'm called delusional or uh, oversensitive or um, just ill in some way just sort of weird and problematic well the family still has not been punished for this, not punished socially, not punished economically, not punished legally, not punished in any way. They are still raping my dignity. You can be, you can be quite sure that any surveillance, any information gotten by surveillance of this apartment, of my, my movements around the, the city, uh, in fact, uh, it is abundantly clear, at least it was abundantly clear in 2013, that those that information was being relayed to my family directly, without delay. And so they get to continue to humiliate me, even at this age, without any, any consequences to them, even though this is illegal. This is illegal. If it is legal then it would be legal because of something like the Patriot Act. And that would mean that the act itself is a crime, a high crime, a national crime. I've actually gotten contradictory advice about how to deal with that family. Some people in law or law enforcement told me that I should uh, simply ignore them, simply don't don't answer their emails. Don't don't answer phone calls. Other people told me that I should confront them and tell them to go away multiple times, just to keep repeating, go away. Well, in the Bible Belt, uh, I, I just mentioned this unwanted contact in the workplace. They contacted me again a year later. And again, I called the police and the police said, you should call them call them back and tell them to, to stop. And, uh, I mean, by that time, this had been going for so going on for so long that I decided, you know, if they want to talk to me, they have to pay me for my time. So I told them, you want to talk? It, it, you know, tens of thousands of dollars per phone call. Either pay up or shove off. And, of course, that's ridiculous. They, tens of thousands of dollars is ridiculously low. They owe me millions in compensation. No. It didn't work for very long. It was a few months later, I had moved to the East Coast, back to the East Coast, and within you know within weeks, they were calling me again. And there, in that city, that new East Coast city, I went to the police again and said, can you make them go away? And the police said, no, sorry. If they're not threatening you, we can't help you. I don't understand this. I, I don't understand. A person should not have to explain why they don't want another person to, to contact them. No means no. I shouldn't have to give my reasons. And again, I wonder if this has to do with gender. If, if the reason that I'm so helpless and disempowered is that I'm a man who wants his mother to go away. I wonder if I would have had more luck if I had been a woman who wants her father to go away. Certainly, as Janet Halley mentions in the excerpt I, I read on the recording from yesterday, uh, certainly women's claims are preferred 
in the court in courts of law uh, in various uh, contexts and uh, instances so a woman has only to allege that her husband has battered her and and he's i think quite helpless it it doesn't work the other way around even though there do seem to be a number of allegations, a steady stream of allegations, if we're to believe the National Coalition for Men, allegations of men uh, saying that they've been battered by their wives. Well, along the same lines of female power as it's conferred formally by the law and by the courts, I can't help recalling an ugly incident that I witnessed. Ugly behavior by a professor. I won't say where. I obviously should not identify this person. I decided to sit in on her class for a while. It was in a topic I was interested in. What gave me pause was her, her personality, her character. She was a young professor, maybe in her 30s, and she was just a sort of an over-the-top, high-wattage dynamo of vehemence, of, of um, over-the-topness. Every gesture of hers was forceful and theatrical and sexual, not sexual in a, in a uh, vulgar way, but it was all about me, 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 me. I'm the center of attention, and I think we all know the type. And there were maybe a dozen people in the class, males and females, obviously. And one of the students was from another country. He couldn't speak English terribly well, speak it well enough, obviously had a, an accent. And he came from a different culture. I don't want to identify the other culture. And at one point during one of the lectures, he he seemed to be challenging her on a point. And you could tell that she didn't like it, that she was getting annoyed by his questioning of her, I guess, authority. Well, a paper was due for the class, and rough drafts were due, or something something along those lines, and the class had to submit written material for evaluation by the professor. And it turns out that he he did something technically wrong. Either he used some source material and didn't cite it, or maybe he plagiarized something, I don't know, but what's clear is that he did it because of cultural misunderstanding. He was, had no idea really how this system works, what the rules are, or at least what the rules effectively are. Why do I know this? Well, because she announced this in the class. Instead of handling the case in the proper way, which is to speak with him confidentially, to take the matter, if it needed to be taken anywhere, to take it to an office, 
for adjudication or for some kind of formal treatment, she she evidently chewed him out in private, threatened him with the consequences which were to be expelled and therefore remanded, as it were, to his country, deported, whatever the right word is when the, your visa expires. And she said to him that she would not do that if they could discuss the matter in class and he would apologize to the class. And that's how we found out about it. One day, she said at the beginning of class, so-and-so has something that he wants to tell all of us. And so-and-so was literally shaking with fear and embarrassment. And he said, uh, the professor explained to me that I did something wrong and I have to apologize to all of you. I am terribly, terribly sorry. This is something I didn't understand. He was totally humiliated. And the professor was satisfied, and then we moved on. Except that none of the rest of us liked this. You could see it on the faces of everyone else there, that this was a very unpleasant thing to do. And in fact, I'm wondering if it's an illegal thing to do. Certainly it's an improper thing to do. And here is the key point, that whatever mistake he made, it was innocent and it was not of the same order as the aggression that she committed. Her offense was higher and her offense was motivated vindictively. You could see that very clearly, that the sadism in her manner. I can understand why anyone, especially a professor, would resent feeling challenged, but there is a right way to deal with it. In this case, she can prove to him that she knows her stuff. You can put someone in their place in the right way, uh, which is to show that you know your stuff. And you don't have to like the person while you do that. In other words, she doesn't have to be nice to this guy if she feels like he doesn't respect her enough. She can be cold and uh, icy with him in return. That's within the rules. But the way to show him he's wrong is to show him that he's wrong. It's not to commit this highly improper, frightening, humiliating, staged retribution in, in front of his peers. The incident also highlights the nature of public humiliation as it happens on university campuses. The academic mobbing incidents that I've mentioned that Kenneth West uses also mentioned uh, are excellent examples of that. That's, this is one of the reasons why Maynell uses the word Holocaust to describe these outrages, these crimes. But there's a larger context to this, this, this assassination by public humiliation or by gossip, for example, which is what's been done to me. It's basically nationwide, or not nation, it's basically um, citywide gossip, citywide slander, and it's more than citywide because it, it has spanned multiple cities now. This, this willingness to use gossip has actually been endorsed by experts. 
and this is something shocking, you will find, I can assure you, in the either the local newspapers of university campuses or even research published in peer-reviewed journals, you can find scholarly works that say that gossip is okay. And you will even find campus pundits encouraging undergraduates to gossip. This is amazing. This is an excellent example of how the fetishizing of innovation has led to disastrous results. The injunction against gossiping is an ancient one. It's ancient. It's precisely because it's ancient that that innovation fetishists will poo-poo it. But I say it's precisely because it's ancient that it should be taken seriously. It should be looked at and considered seriously and checked out. This is an old idea. Does it hold water? And of course, in this case, it does hold water. The injunction against gossiping is exactly what's behind legal traditions that are meant to protect the accused, to keep certain kinds of discourse outside court proceedings so as to protect the dignity of the accused. The laws against defamation are an even more obvious example of the general disapprobation and criminalization of slander or libel. Well, I've also mentioned uh, the book on mobbing by Duffy and Sperry. This is a book published by Oxford, the OUP. Uh, It's called Mobbing. And on page 216, there are a few interesting lines about this. I'll read. Utilizing an independent external contact is one strategy that holds some promise for management's serious about turning the tide on mobbing. Another strategy that seems to be gaining some momentum is the development of no-gossip policies as a human resources tool. Gossip, negative characterizations of an employee's personality, personal life, or job performance, and the spreading of malicious rumors are behaviors common in mobbing and in mobbing-prone organizations. McKnight described her meeting with the HR director during her job interview at printingforless.com, an online printing company in Montana that has adopted high-commitment HR practices and a no-gossip policy. McKnight said that the HR director told her that, quote, there's no backstabbing here, and no office politics. Gossiping and talking behind someone's back are not tolerated, end quote. She accepted employment at printingforless.com and signed their Agreement to Values form, indicating that she would abide by the no-gossip policy. For McKnight, the policy at printingforless.com resulted in an organizational climate that was significantly better than that at her previous employment, and she sees the policy as fostering greater teamwork. Proponents of no-gossip policies see them as ways of increasing organizational productivity, improving organizational culture, and reducing organizational liability. However, such policies are not without their critics. 
in an ethnographic study of workplace politics conducted at an elementary school, Hallett, Harger, and Eder found that gossip provides a map of the informal organization and can also be a source of positive information and cohesiveness. Our view is that no-gossip policies work best in combination with a set of high-commitment HR practices and are potentially useful as a core anti-mobbing strategy. Such policies signal HR's and management's intention to hold themselves accountable for fostering a positive workplace culture and hold members of the organization accountable for upholding it. Well, that's the excerpt. It's obviously full of big words. And again, notice that researchers, people with PhDs, are being consulted as a way of trying to answer the question, to resolve the question, should we gossip or should we not? Notice that gossiping has been going on for thousands of years, and literature has been written for hundreds and thousands of years. Notice that it doesn't occur to anyone to consult our vast store of wisdom as it's collected in histories and, and in literature to settle the matter of whether gossiping should happen or shouldn't. This is scientism. This is the belief that nothing was known before Freud and before this, the pseudoscientific psycho-workers decided to uh, take over the world, really. It's only because they say you should gossip that you should think about gossiping. It's only because they say you shouldn't gossip that you should think of not gossiping. We don't need psychos to tell us whether to gossip or not. The fact that the Pope last year, I believe, made a speech or maybe even a sermon denouncing gossiping, warning against it, and enjoining people to refrain from it tells you that uh, we don't need people with PhDs and uh, pseudo-medicalized jargon to tell us how to be moral and ethical. Having said that, I do appreciate Sperry and Duffy's book, their, their attempt to use whatever they can use to fight mobbing. And by the way, I don't mean to suggest that the Pope is a fit substitute for the authority of a psychologist, None of these people uh, should be granted any particular authority in the domain of everyday human experience. Our own experiences are the authorities. We don't need popes. We also don't need uh, psychologists to tell us what, uh, what is ethical or unethical behavior. Well, what this professor did was not gossip. What she did was public humiliation, but the two often go hand in hand, as they do in my case. I recently made a recording about my trip to another city uh, in which I was evidently defamed in a, in a massive way wherever I went in the city. That's not to say that every individual was attuned to my presence, but that wherever I went, and I went to different places, I encountered people who were uh, gang-stalking me or watching me. And they were ordinary citizens. These are not; these can't all be employees of the FBI or DHS. They were ordinary, everyday people. And again, the question becomes: Why? 
of course, the the, sh- the short answer is because we think you have a bomb. We, we're we're surprised by your sudden decision to come and visit this city. We've had you under surveillance, and you didn't give any indication of why you're coming here. And so we're we're going to gangstalk you. We're going to keep very close watch on you. But that doesn't answer the question. What would have been the danger in not slandering me throughout this other, whole other major new city? And of course, the answer would be, well, you could have, uh, you could kill someone. You could be planning to kill someone. And, and then the question becomes again, well, how, is, how would gang stalking me prevent that from happening? Has anyone stopped to think it through? Suppose I have a gun in my backpack. How is your gang stalking me going to prevent me from reaching into the backpack, pulling a gun out, and shooting people? The only way you could stop me is if I announced a few seconds before that I'm going to reach into my backpack, pull out a gun, and start shooting people. Who does that? Who announces that? What is the other fear? That I have an explosive in my backpack? Well, look at what what happened in Boston. Um... Assuming that uh, we haven't been duped uh, and that the Tsarnaevs are the culprits of that bombing in exactly the way in which the narrative has been propagated by the major mouthpieces, what do you think? What do you think you could have done as gang stalkers to stop the Tsarnaevs? After all, the bombs that they planted were far away from them, and they had a an electronic. If I remember right, I haven't looked at the story in a long time. But they had some kind of electronic detonator that they would just click to set the bombs off. What could gang stalking do? What could watching them do to prevent that? Did you think they're going to say, by the way, everyone around us, in two seconds we're going to click this button here and kill people, so now's your time to start uh, running toward us and, and tackling us to the ground. What? I don't understand the rationale here. And I think I do actually understand the rationale. The point of the gang stalking and the surveillance is not to contain a problem. It's to create one and to explode it on larger and larger scales. It's to torment, harass, defame, and outrage the target. Above all, it's to provoke. That is the intention of the FBI, whether or not it's the intention of the informants themselves who do the gang stalking, who, who sort of are the boots on the ground, I don't know. Maybe they think, or almost surely they think, that they can control the situation by doing this. It is typically a refusal to understand that you cannot control the situation. Not this way. The only thing this way does, the only thing that this way leads to is escalation. And I hope I don't have to add that that's not any kind of warning or premonition that I'm going to do anything bad. It is truly insulting to me that I have to add this qualification. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. (laughs) 
The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.